0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. St. Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Every year since the late 1800s, on this day in the city of Rome, there is typically a prayer service that the Holy Father would regularly preside over. And so there's this marvelous custom of on this day, the Holy Father going to the great column of Our Lady, the column of the Immaculate Conception in the Plaza de España in Rome. A Kneeler is set up and he takes time in prayer there. Pope Francis did that by himself this morning. Unfortunately, with the COVID spiking up again in Europe, a large public ceremony for thousands of people would not be wise. However, what will, what happened later in the day and what happens every year in addition to the Holy Father's visit is that the firemen of Rome go to the column of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th. And on her feast day, the chief of the Roman fire department comes forward and presents a bouquet of white roses um, in honor of Our Lady um, at the pedestal. And then they bring one of the trucks with the extendable bucket. And they extend it all the way up to the top of the column so that a firefighter can likewise place a wreath of flowers on Our Lady's outstretched arm. Now that's a cool custom. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't wondering about how we could do something like that here. (laughs) Um, But one of the, the, we begin with that reflection, that, that little story, that illustration, just as a reminder of what the essence of a feast day is. And you know, we lose the sense of feast days in our language of days of obligation. And, you know, let's be honest, nobody likes being told what to do. Um, So when we think of a day like today as a holy day of obligation, we're already selling what it is we do short. Because we're in the I have to go, but that have to is burdensome. But isn't it true in our families when something great happens? We have to celebrate that. But notice that we don't have the onus of obligation as if it's an imposition, because we desire to. It's a different kind of obligation. It's the obligation of love, the obligation of joy. When we speak of days of obligation, that is, in fact, what the church is stressing. These are feast days. And therefore, they are not days primarily for tears or for hardship. They are days of a certain joyfulness days of a celebratory character. And this example of the firefighters in Rome, this is their day and they celebrate it with Our Lady, and in doing so they celebrate her, is a wonderful and powerful reminder of that. In fact, devotion to Mary has a number of these marvelous touches to it. There's the blessing of grapes and vineyards in France connected with September 8th, the Nativity of Our Lady. There is the custom in many parts of the world to pass out candy on Our Lady's Feast Day. And it comes from the words of that beautiful prayer that names her our life, our sweetness, and our hope. And note that there's a certain playfulness involved in this, and yet it's beautiful. Because it makes very, very concrete that we are, in fact, saying something in that prayer. And how many times have we let those words pass our lips without even registering what it is that we're saying? And so we have the beauty of a heart that literally has felt that prayer. She really is my sweetness. And we celebrate her on some levels by celebrating that sweetness and sharing it among ourselves these are simple things but they are very very beautiful things and so it is right and fitting that we gather here today for a prolonged period with our lady we call it a retreat day but what it really is is a celebration of our blessed lady the sinless virgin in the light of this unspeakably great mystery of her immaculate conception. And notice, when we do this, we're not thinking first of ourselves. Note how wonderful that is. We're not here saying, yay me. We're here because we are delighted in something that was done for her. This is an important element of what healthy devotion really involves. To be able to look at Our Lady, to look at the saints and rejoice in their glory, rejoice in their privilege, rejoice in their goodness because we are in fact happy for them. And note again how wonderful that is in the way it can call us out of ourselves. And we live in a self-centered world that says, look at me. Pay attention to me. Take care of me. And we we live in a world that even when we try to celebrate something greater, we always find a way to bring it back to me. And so cultivating this sense, because if we're really then attentive to this, we realize that This is what it means to love Our Lady. Just like in our families and our homes, our love for one another has to be something greater than I pay attention to you for the sake of what you'll give me. I'll pay attention to you for the sake of what you'll do for me. But again, if we're honest, we have all had that negative experience of being used, haven't we? Of not being fully appreciated of you're there for me when you need something, but when I need something, where are you? You're there for me when you get something, but when even when something good is happening in my life, it doesn't touch you, it doesn't affect you, because you think there's nothing in it for you. And note how these kind of dispositions, which creep in all the time, can stop our love short, can cut off its growth and it requires a certain reorientation of the heart to move beyond that. That too is one of the reasons we have feast days, where we gather to celebrate what God has done for someone else. And in doing so, we know that that involves us. In doing so, we know that it involves the world. In doing so, we know all of that, and yet our joy is not merely the joy of what I've gotten out of it. It's the joy of what has been done for someone I care about. And so these are moments. These are moments across the liturgical year, these Marian feast days in particular, where the church puts Our Lady before us in the unfolding of all of the things God has done in her, through her, and for her, for us. But so that we might pay attention and see how great a place he has given her. That we might pay attention and see the great things he has done for her. That our hearts can be moved with awe wonderment, and admiration. Because when that happens, love for her begins to grow within us. This is vitally, vitally important because without doing this, love for Our Lady doesn't grow. And St. Louis de Montfort, when he speaks about devotion to Mary, and he talks about what the essential characteristics of genuine, authentic devotion to Mary are says that the very first characteristic is that it is interior. It is something inside of us. But then he says something very important. But it doesn't get in us by accident. It doesn't magically show up inside of us. It has a source in the same way that we don't deeply fall in love with one another in our earthly relationships without spending time getting to know one another, in the same way, we will never truly love Our Lady if we spend no time getting to know her. And no, this is not the same as spending time asking for her help. We should do that. But there is a deeper level of knowing Mary than just knowing the favors she does for me. And that is knowing her. In the same way, I would have a deeper way of knowing you than simply knowing the things you do for me. That's good and allows me to appreciate you to a certain degree, but that's not fully or truly knowing you. And this is why, then, the great saints have always recommended that practice of regularly setting time aside to think about Our Lady's goodness, her privileges, her glories, and trying to understand them. Because the more fully we do that, the more fully we know her. And in the case of Our Lady, the, statement is, the old statement is very true. To know her is to love her. But that deep interior love, which marks a genuine devotion to Our Lady, has a source. It's not something that just gets spiritually infused in us out of nowhere. And so it is something we can work for, and it is a grace we can ask heaven for but it does require us taking time to pay attention. And so note how beautiful it is that all of these periods throughout the year, we have moments that are built in where the church pauses and does exactly that. Out of love for Our Lady, we celebrate her, and in that love and that celebration, our knowledge of her deepens, so that our love may grow stronger." And what a beautiful pattern, what a beautiful rhythm this is. And it's out of that depth, that interior depth of affection for Our Lady, that these other customs emerge. Whether it's the firemen and their wreath, families in parts of the world with their bags of candy. Whether it's the, vi- the, vin- the, the winemakers, and the blessing of their vineyards. Whatever these things are, they come from this. And it's also important to understand that the reason why we have holy days of obligation in the first place is to allow the opportunity to celebrate. Because The simple fact of the matter is, the reason the church implemented something called a day of obligation was because the common people, us, lived in a world where they never had a day off, ever. Imagine that. Every day, the world owns my time. Every day, if I want to support my family, every day, I have to work long hours, and I am always exhausted and there's never a moment to catch my breath and look up. Especially in a period where so much work was physical, demanding, dangerous, and exhausting. And because those who had the luxury of being able to rest were those who owned the businesses and paid the salaries and they got rich by paying low salaries and not giving anybody a day off, The church intervened economically, actually, and said the people have a right to rest, rejoice, and celebrate. And so that they can exercise that right, we are going to require it. In our modern world, we've got it backwards. Oh, man, I'm losing free time because I have to go to church. And the reality is there's such a thing as free time in many parts of the world because the church put these days in the calendar and said the people must have these days off so that they can go to church. And so note, going to church was part of the resting and the celebrating was part of the resting and the recovering from the toil of the world. It was a way of reminding ourselves we don't belong to our jobs. We don't belong to our needs. And that the pursuit of worldly profit must always be subordinate to the pursuit of heavenly goods. A marvelous idea that is. How refreshing. And, you know, if we're honest and we look at the world today, don't we see that we're going back in the wrong direction again? We're going back in those directions of longer hours, of being available 24-7, of the sense that there is no point to catch a breath and to take a day. And so on this day, Our lady really is our life, our sweetness, and our hope. She is our rest. And we rest with her. And we rejoice in her and with her on this day because we know the tiredness and the frustration of not being able to rest. And note how this is a part of the fallenness of the world, too. You know, it's easy to name more obvious things. You know, the great wrongs, murder, adultery, abortion. We can name those things easily, but the simple fact of the matter is there are many more oppressive realities than those, and a number of them are economic. A number of them are the ways so much just claims our time and drains our strength. And so a day like this is a day to come aside for our strength to be renewed. And to be renewed in a celebration. That as much as there is to complain about, there are things worth celebrating. And all of a sudden, we have a sense of how rich our faith is and what a treasure it is. And having said that, now let's take a few moments and look at this particular treasure, the treasure of this day around which we rest and within which we rest and rejoice, the Immaculate Conception of Our Blessed Lady. And note from the context of our first reading from Mass that reading from Genesis chapter 3 of what happens after Adam and Eve have stretched out their hands to the tree and taken its fruit. And the Lord comes and as we know, they hide. And so note what is happening here. Note how the dynamics of sin work. Man does what he knows he shouldn't do. And the Lord's first response is to seek the sinner. God comes. And man's response is to hide. Sin produces a desire in the heart to hide from the Lord. Sin produces a desire in the heart to flee from god think of those moments in your life where you knew you should sit down and pray but you're just not going to those times where we're hovering around do i go to church or not and there's a certain desire to get there but there's some disquiet within me that says maybe i should stay away it's the echo of this moment at the beginning God comes, and the guilt-ridden sinner flees, hides, will not come out before his face, or better, will not show his face to the Lord. And everything that happens after this happens with the heart of man in hiding. This entire conversation in our first reading for Mass today happens with Adam and Eve still in the bushes. And why do I say that? Because the author of the book of Genesis never says they came out. Only that the Lord spoke and finally they answered. And so it's a conversation with hearts that are in hiding. And into the hidden heart of man, that heart that clings to the darkness, that is afraid to come out into the light, the Lord speaks of what will happen, about the work without reward that waits for Adam, about the pain of bringing life into the world and the disordered relationship with her husband that waits for Eve. And then the Lord turns and speaks to the one person, ironically, who isn't hiding, the snake. And the Lord speaks to the snake. Now, isn't that interesting? We don't think of the Lord going out of his way to talk to Satan, do we? And yet here, the Lord now, man remains hidden it's not that god doesn't know where he is the lord knows exactly what bush adam is hiding behind and so no this is not an issue that adam has concealed himself from anybody except himself the lord knows his heart the lord knows where he is the only one in darkness is sin-fallen Adam, sin-inflicted Eve. The light of the Lord is there. But they cling to the shadows. They make their home in the shadows. And because they do not have it within them to come out of hiding, even though the Lord is standing right there. The Lord then turns and speaks to that one who has caused this. And he says, this is the reality you've given them. And they are trapped in this reality. They, for whatever reason, can't escape it. On the one hand, Adam and Eve could step out of the bushes anytime they want. And yet, on the other hand, they can't. Something within them is holding them back. You see how disordered the heart has already become. On the one hand, they would want nothing more than to be with God. On the other hand, all of these insecurities and other hungers and appetites and urges are there that they also want, that they also indulge. And they're caught, they're paralyzed, they can't step forward. And because they're remaining there, the Lord says, this is what remaining there means. By the sweat of your brow, you shall toil for the fruits of the earth. You will seek fruit, and it will give you a harvest of thorns. Your urge shall be for your husband, but he shall lord over you. No longer equals. With pain will you bring children forth. This is the world you've caught yourselves up in. Let me tell you how it's going to be. That is the world. And then he turns to Satan and he says, And now let me tell you how it is going to And so our first reading for Mass centers around the Lord turning to the serpent and saying, let me tell you how things are going to go. Boy, that reading sounds a little different now, doesn't it? The Lord turning to the evil that has brought all of this destruction into the world and says, now let me speak to you. And so here now we have a word of light Spoken to the prince of darkness. On your belly shall you crawl and dust shall you eat. In other words, you are not a great, mighty, and proud dragon. You, before me, are more like a worm that grubs on the earth. That is, who you are and who you will be. What a remarkable statement. And then he says, and I will put enmity. The word means hatred. Okay, we, we, we make it all nice by translating it as enmity. It, it means hatred. Now think about this for a second. Don't we grow up thinking hate doesn't come from God. Oh yeah, it does. This one does the one hatred that God has placed in the world is this one. I will put hatred, hostility, animosity, opposition, warfare. I will put that between you and the woman. What a remarkable statement that is. Note the force of those words. I will put hatred between you and the woman. Relentless, constant, unyielding opposition. and between your offspring and hers. Well, let's pause there for a second. Because then the question is, what woman? There's only one there, right? There's only one there, which is Eve. But it can't be Eve because she's already lost. she has in her heart a certain affection for the things of sin now she has within her a certain inclination toward the serpent she's not totally compromised but she's not totally opposed no what the lord is doing is he's talking about somebody who is not standing there physically present at the moment. I will put enmity between you and another woman. The woman. Note what the Lord is announcing. There will be the woman. And how will we know the woman? she will be everything, O serpent, that you are not. Where you are proud, she will be humble. Where you have nothing but poison in your fangs, she will have nothing but kindliness in her heart. Where you are the prince of lies, she will be the wise queen of truth. Where you seduce all hearts, her heart will not allow you entry. Notice what the Lord is saying. This is what he is saying. There will be the woman who will not be your slave, who will not be your subject, who will have zero affection for you and zero friendship with you. No affection for anything that comes from you. Any of your offspring. How absolutely remarkable. The Lord here is announcing that the way it's going to be will necessarily involve the woman. And then he continues. You will strike at her heel and she will crush your head. He also says, and you will strike at their heel and they will crush your head. And he also says, as we heard in our first reading, you will strike at his heel and he will crush your head it can be translated three ways note how marvelous that statement is those many levels of meaning but all centering around a fundamental opposition between the source of sin and a woman completely opposed to sin a sinless woman This is the initial word of the Immaculate Conception. That woman, the woman without sin who will have offspring, offspring opposed to all of those who flow from the serpent. On the one hand, that would be the great virtues against the great vices, but on the other hand, he is saying the woman will have children. And the children of the woman will likewise live in a fundamental opposition to you and all of your children. And among those children there will be one, he. He who will be offspring of the woman, son of the mother, And he will crush your head. But again, note how violent the imagery is. The Lord is talking about hatred and crushing heads. Note how sharp that language is. This fundamental, relentless opposition to the Lord. And note how aggressive, how bold, The language of the woman is your head will be crushed because of her. The crushing of your head will happen through her. Her pride, her humility will break the head of your pride. What a remarkable image, this word that the church has long called the Gospel before the Gospels, the first promise of salvation. And note how, even as the Lord talks of that great champion, the son of the woman who will come, he first mentions the woman. That first blush of dawn that heralds the arrival of the sun. That bright and brilliant and sinless morning star that announces the coming of the victorious sun who will dispel all darkness. This is what we celebrate today in celebrating her. Clothed with all the virtues that were taken, rudely snatched away from Adam and Eve, filled with the blessings in their fullness, the woman. Where Satan is filled with spite, she is filled with charity. Where Satan is filled with selfish ambition and greed, she is filled with grace. And so it is then, when the moment of saving this world has come, What do we see? Gabriel comes to Nazareth because a woman is waiting there. Note how marvelous that is. And why is she there? We find out from the angel she is there for the sake of a son who will come into the world only through her, the woman. In the book of Genesis, as soon as man has fallen into guilt and found himself trapped in a place of hiding that he can't leave, the Lord who came seeking him in his woundedness promises the day of the woman. And now, centuries later, we have a name for the woman. And her name is Mary. She wasn't born yet, and yet mysteriously she is present at the beginning in the eye of God as he looks forward. Even as man fell and Satan appears victorious, the Lord has already seen the victory he will bring. And it is a victory that will come through the woman, sinless, immaculate, and a mother. And so suddenly, suddenly we now find her and we see that the woman is Mary. And Mary is the woman. This is a point that Christ himself emphasizes in the Gospel of John. Twice in the Gospel, he turns to his mother and he doesn't say, Mom. And he doesn't say Mary, he names her woman. Including that great day where hanging on a tree, he effected the redemption of those of us who fell into the grave at the foot of a tree. And looking at the foot of that tree, He who saw the fall of the first woman at the foot of a tree looks down at the foot of this tree and sees the woman and says to her, Behold your son. And all of a sudden, she who is the mother of the son has become the mother of many sons and many daughters. Because the woman will have offspring, many. Note how marvelous. Note how marvelous. And how the mystery we celebrate here relates to all of that. Because when the Lord decided that now is the time for me to come into this fallen world and seek after fallen Adam one more time. I will come through the woman. And it is the sinless Virgin Mary who is his first abode and his first resting place here on this earth. It is the sinless Virgin Mary who is that glorious gateway. Imagine that. When Adam and Eve are cast out of, he- out of Eden, what does the Lord do? He closes the way. And he places an angel with a fiery sword right by it so no one gets in. The door of paradise is closed and man is locked out. And suddenly, as we heard in our gospel today, at the very fullness of time, a better gate, a holier door opens. And the Lord passes through that gate from heaven to earth. Her name is Mary. How absolutely marvelous. But note what this feast emphasizes for us if we listen closely. We see that it's not just that Mary has a private blessing, a private dignity, a privilege we can't hope to have. As unique as it is, it is a privilege, a grace, and a blessing that is given because of you and because of me. Why is she the Immaculate Conception? Because I need the Lord to save me. That's why. And this is the way the Lord has marked out for that salvation. But note also what it implies. There is something about the woman that is involved in our struggle against sin. There is something about the woman that is involved with the coming of the gospel, the coming of salvation into this world. And there is something about the sinless virgin that involves the opposition of the people of God to the dark powers of this world. Boy, those are fighting words. This is why devotion to the Immaculate Conception was very popular among and a great animator of missionary vocations. Those who understood the faith involves confronting the dark and negative realities of this world, first in our hearts, but also in the world around us, drew great strength from the word of the woman. And they understood to grow in faithful Christian life is to meet with opposition. Satan doesn't oppose those who cooperate with him. The world doesn't resist those who cooperate with it, although it does consume them. But the minute one begins to turn toward grace, away from the false promises of the world, oh, there is opposition. And on hearing those words and reading those words from Genesis, the Christian faithful have long understood. But that's the way it has to be. It's not that I'm uniquely persecuted. It's that there is a fundamental opposition that seeks to snatch me away from goodness. But true goodness, real goodness, faces that. And it opposes all of those things that would seek to overwhelm us. And so it is actually here that she is seen to be the mighty refuge of sinners. How marvelous. Before she is born, she is named as that one who will oppose the dark power of the serpent. She is that one through whom victory will come. And her children, her children, the more they love her, the more they know her, the more they are fully her children will go forth likewise. And they will trample pride under the feet of their humility. They will trample lies under the feet of truth, not in a violent way not aggressively, but victoriously, relentlessly, they will walk in the strength of that victory, a victory that comes through the woman, by her son, the great Lord who wins the battle. But note the promise, note the promise that the Lord and the Lord's mother and the other children of the woman will all do something similar. They will be opposed to the serpent and his offspring and they will crush his head. What a bold vision of Christian life that is. And again, It's a vision, again, that we always have to come back to root ourselves in the woman. Because there is a certain proud temptation among the Christian faithful to go forth as great spiritual warriors and champions, sword in hand, to do battle. Let's remember the woman who doesn't show up with a sword in her hand, who doesn't show up playing as a soldier. She is humble. She is holy. She is filled with grace and virtue. And obedience and charity and faithfulness are the only weapons she Because she has the strength of remaining where God has placed her. And she has the strength of being strong with the strength of his will when she does what he asks of her. And so as bold and aggressive as the language of the scripture is, it always comes back to, who are we talking about again? The woman. Who doesn't use the weapons of Satan because she is opposed to him. The woman who doesn't act in the way of Satan, because she is opposed to him. The woman who doesn't need to force a victory, because God wins it. And all she has to do is cooperate. How curious, such mighty strength from peaceful obedience. Such unspeakable greatness from simple humility. Such wealth given through the hands of one who is herself in this world so very poor. And this is why that very beautiful prayer associated with the, immaculo- uh, the miraculous medal, a medal that honors Our Lady's conception, has been given its particular words. O oh Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Recourse. That is the one to whom I turn when the need is great and I have nowhere else to go. No one else can help me. I must have recourse to you. This is not help me tie my shoe. This is the world is crashing down around me. This is I'm drowning. Somebody throw me a life preserver. This is the building is on fire. I'm on the third floor. I need recourse to a ladder to get out the window and get down. Recourse i have recourse to you when the need is great when i am threatened and overwhelmed you are that one in whom we find recourse we can turn to you O mary conceive without sin pray for us who have recourse to you why the woman is announced when man is trapped in his helplessness and has no one to help the woman. But why do I know I can flee to her with confidence? Because she is sinless. And so there is no indifference in her heart. There is no vanity in her heart. There's no self-seeking in her heart. I can turn to her and she's not going to negotiate with me and name a price. I can turn to her because I know when she says she will help, she will not forget and she is not dishonest. Her sinlessness is why we have such confidence. All of those things that cause us not to have confidence in one another have no place in her. And so just as the Lord could trust her completely, so can we. We celebrate on this day that woman, the woman whom God himself was pleased to make a necessary part of our salvation. He could have done it in any other way, but he who is infinitely wise, completely perfect, will only do things in the best way. And the very best way is the way that from its very inception involves the woman. How good it is that we are here to celebrate this today. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit,